You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 69 of the podcast My guest this week is What's going on, my name is Jay Rawls Um, Wow, notable people, huh? I don't know, most Def, Kweli, Aloe Black, Eric Roberson, Dose One Casual souls of mischief. I've been I've been pretty blessed. I've been able to work with a couple people. Yes, yes. peace, God. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yo, we gotta let the young people know what it is, what hip hop is, man. See, this new hip hop, it don't foster no thought, man. It don't spread no knowledge. It don't give them nothing, man. But it's up to us to give them that knowledge, that wisdom, that understanding. My man wise and tell, drop a jewel on me. Why don't we try to believe? Practice ruling public schooling doesn't impede the seeds. Yo, this is an important episode because Jay Rawls, the OG producer, swings through. But once we get away from the music and start talking about education and how it relates to the youth and culture, Dr. Rawls comes out. And we deep dive into how the groundwork into their teaching methods and how hip-hop culture could be useful in building relationships and building student engagement. I, of course, can't do it alone. So midway through the conversation, the hip-hop duo of John Robinson and J. Rawls break it down. Basically, J.R. is in the house. We go back and forth on numerous topics as the two met during the independent hip-hop era of the late 90s. Their first album, the 1960s Jazz Revolution, again, was released over a decade ago about highlighting the history of jazz and its connection to hip-hop. New music is it's on the horizon, of course, uh, but really quick, though, like, comment, and subscribe if you like this podcast. I know you're listening right now, but it's available wherever you get your podcasts, and the website is bedroombeethovens.com. It's the one-stop hub for all the social media links. You can email me directly and check out the archives. But last but not least, patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens is the quickest, easiest way to support your boy. A buck or two helps, not only for my self-esteem, but let's let, let's keep it real here. It keeps the show ad free, and and I got some goodies and perks I can swing your way in return. So check it out. J Rawls is in the house. This podcast episode will stay true to the ten thousand hour journey by covering his musical craft as well as their educational message, welcoming longtime fans of their music in addition to educators and administrators. Get learned. I don't know. Quite frankly, it's only a matter of time before you're on uh, the People's Party and you scoff at all the little guys' podcasts like me, man. So thanks for being here. Oh, not even, man. There are no little guys, <laughs> man. Not at all. So you've been you've been putting the Midwest on your back for decades now, man. That's the home base, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Columbus, Ohio, the home base. Um, still repping. Still here. Still, uh, you know, still doing it, man. Well, let's say you're a you're a kid. 
you're you're playing on Eldorn Drive there in the eighties and a car drives by you. Is it is it playing hip hop in that part of the world? Uh no, sir. It's gonna be playing Luther Vandross or uh something, you know, something along those lines, some some L T D or you know, maybe some zap or something like that. But it's definitely not playing hip hop when we was little kids in the eighties. We we kind of discovered that and and um man, it just took over everything, man. Me and my crew there, man, it was like Buka and Hakeem and Jermaine and Dwayne. And we was just, you know, little kids hanging on the block, man. But I think what really did it was 84, man, when we saw Breaking and then later on Beach Street. And that just changed everything. So how does how does Kiss work its way into all that? Because that kind of seems like an anomaly. But what was it about their music that resonated with you? I think the rebelliousness, you know what I'm saying? Like Kiss, for me, Kiss um, um, was just was just like that rock, that, that rebellious feel. And, and another thing, you know, uh, the drums, you know, hard driving rock drums. I still look for those to this day. So kiss was definitely a part of that for me. Oh man. Yeah. I love that. And, and, you know, the early nineties is when you kind of to start, you know, take producing a bit more serious. You named, uh, Buka and all that, but Greg Bates, you know, from the brothers Grimm, he kind of showed you how to use the ASR, right? Greg did show me how to use the ASR 10 and, and funny, uh, it's sitting here right in front of me right now. The, the exact same one that he uh, showed me how to how to work. Um, it, it was just um, a lot of people at that time, like more people in Columbus, was using the Insonic ASR ten. Uh, I'm sorry, ASR uh, no EPS sixteen plus. That was the machine, and um, it was Insonic stuff. It wasn't a lot of people didn't have MPCs or anything like that. So I learned my chops on the EPS 16 plus and then the ASR came out and Greg showed me some pointers and that was it. I've been using it and I still use it to this day. It's, it's my go to. And that was like 93, 94, right? It was 94. Yeah. 94. And then a few years later, you know, oh man, you know, even as recent as this week, people are still hit you up and they're like, yo, that Black Star cut, it's a classic. You killed it. Yeah. Yeah, they do. You know, and it's funny because I was in college when I got the ASR 10, um, but I left it. I left it at home because I just wasn't sure, you know, what to do. I went to University of Cincinnati, but I lived an hour and a half away in Columbus. So, you know, after a couple of weeks, I was like, you know what, Mom, I got to take it down there. So I took it down to Cincinnati, took a few crates of records, and just started tinkering, and I got better, and, and just kept making music. And, and Brown Skin Lady was actually one of the early ones that I had created um, in probably 95, 96. And it was just an interlude because I didn't know what to do with it. It was just, you know, sequences and just different things like that. But I just had let, you know, Kwali hear it. He ended up letting most hear it. And then I guess that's the end of the story. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, when it, 2020 hindsight, it's a classic. But at the time, you're not, you don't know you're, you're creating a classic. But exactly. at, at the same time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but no execs or A&Rs, were willing to take a chance on you, even after you provided that beat. No jazz labels, nothing. It was, it was an uphill battle. No, and it still is. I mean, I've never really had major label, any any type of major support or anything like that. Everything has been, 
you know, uh, building relationships and working with different uh, smaller labels. But no, nothing big kind of happened even right after that. And, but that's crazy because you're rocking the jazz stage at ComFest over a decade ago. And yet labels, they didn't know how to approach jazz hop. And I really can't believe nobody really said, we want you to do more. Yeah, we actually sat down and talked with uh, the Liquid Crystal Project. We actually sat down and talked with Blue Note and I played some of the music. And the A&R there, the head A&R there actually told me, you know, we don't know how to market you. We wouldn't know what to do and, and how to put you guys out there. And this was 05. And, it, and it's, it's kind of funny because like a little after that, they ended up doing Mad Lib Shades of Blue. So I don't know. I mean, I guess that's why you have to go to Japan and, and you did some shows with Paranormal because Japan's where that music's appreciated. And New Jabez is a god there, you know, Fat John and all that. Oh, definitely. I do. <laughs> I definitely know Fat John. I, I actually just talked to him about 20 minutes ago. Um, he, and he, uh, he is a God over there in New Jabez and all that, man. They, but they, they actually do appreciate it in Europe as well. You know, Europe really appreciated what we were doing as well. Yeah. I know people go crazy over the black star stuff, but I'm a 3582 fiend, man. And I gotta get oh, fat wow. John on the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, I can, I can help you hook that up. John is that dude. Um, you know, he's living in Germany, but he's still as, as active as ever. Well, you know, if we're focusing, you know, not on Japan and back in the Midwest, I mean, you you had Bone Thugs. You had, I mean, you had people that were holding Ohio down, High Tech, Ill Poetic, Dante of Mood. Hell, I've had on Theory Has It and Charles Hamilton. They're all from there as well. But why is everyone's knee-jerk reaction L.A. or New York? Can't you bloom where you're planted? Isn't Ohio just as good of a place as any other? It should be, but that's just, I think that's just the way that entertainment works. I mean, you look at the Midwest funk. It was created in, in Dayton, you know, Zap. Um, Heat Wave, Sun, you, you've got all these classic groups, but they didn't really, you know, get things going until they were in L.A. or New York or and, and, and you know, L.A. has even adopted that that Midwest funk sound. And, and it's kind of people think it's L.A., but it really came from like, you know, Dayton, Ohio. It's just the way it happens, man. We're not an entertain, entertainment state. It's funny. I, I just had Steve Arrington on the on the podcast, and you know we were talking about the Ohio players, and you're like from the true Ohio players. Yeah, and you're right. He you know he got his first kind of uh, put on moment when he he had to move out to the L.A. area. So correct, correct. And I believe wasn't he on Solar with Dick Griffin? Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and you know when I when I put the magnifying glass on you guys, I I know that there's artists that uh you know there's Eclipse and and Moxie Monster and Spirit and Greenhouse Effect and Gold Shoes and it's a hotbed of talent. You know, it sucks that right, it's that way. Right. You have really done your research, yes. Um, and 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 these are things I've said for the longest. It, it really is a hotbed of talent. It's just a lot of people get frustrated. You know, I'm I'm working with a lot of people from here, and they get frustrated because you don't get that same shine unless you are in L.A. or New York or somewhere else. And that's just it's just a part of the business, I think. You mentioned getting a degree from I think uh, I think it was uh, University of Cincinnati's College of Business, correct? Correct. And it was kind of an opportunity for you to network because you built relationships there. I mean, we can thank that university alone for Loan Catalyst because Jay Sands went there. That is correct. You know, you you really did your research. Yeah, Jay Sands, um, he's from Pittsburgh, but he he um, his mom moved to Columbus and he ended up going to the University of Cincinnati. And so we both went to UC, but never met at UC. We actually met here in Columbus at Buka's house. And, um, you know, we ended up uh, through mutual friends meeting there, but realized we both went to UC 
And then, you know, right after that Christmas break, it was like Christmas break of 94 that we met. And right after that, we started making songs that whole 95. And by 96, we were putting out a mixtape. And, and, and then in 96, he also 95, late 95, 96, he introduced me to uh, Dante from Mood and Main Flow from Mood. And that's how I kind of met the whole Cincinnati home skillet, the whole one of battle team. And, uh, you know, it just all blossomed from there. Was it called Lindner, Lindner College back then? Yeah, it was called Lindner. Yeah, Carl H. Lindner College, Business College. And so you are you meet all these people and you get the placement on Blackstar. And then you became a computer analyst. Is that the timeline? Yeah, that's exactly the timeline. I um, That's exactly how it went. I uh, I did the, the, the Blackstar album. Um, in like August or September of 97. And then by November, I got my first job as a computer analyst. And, and uh, that was it. I was, I was working. I was in the workforce. And you hated that job so much that you considered switching gears and becoming a teacher. Is that fair to say? <laughs> um, that, that's exactly accurate. Uh, I did hate it. And, and a cousin of mine told me that I should try to be a teacher. And I really, at first, you know, kind of laugh, like, there's no way I can teach, you know, little kids. It's just not, not for me. I can't, you know, no. And, and what ended up happening, I hated it so much. I just ended up switching jobs and I fell in love with it. There's for me, education is, is my calling. I mean, you seem like a positive guy, but be real with me. Like you're, you're at a job that you hate and you're like, damn, you know, I I produced on a black star album. Like (laughs) you must've had a lot of maturity and a lot of resilience to get through that stage. You know, that's kind of been the story of my life though. It's just kind of like always the underdog and, and that's not a bad thing, but it's just, I never really had a, a time where I was like, you know, getting paid hundreds of thousands to make music like that still hasn't occurred. So it's always been like that. So that's really all I know is just to keep fighting and keep pushing and keep putting music out, because in the, at the end of the day, it's all about your legacy. And that's why, you know, my last, you know, rap record of me rapping was was called The Legacy, because it's all about what I put out for my kids and what I put out for my fans that will outlast me. That's that's way more important than any uh, dollar sign. I agree with you on that. I think so too. So you're you you know you get approached like, hey, you should do teaching. Like, well, I'm not going to teach other people's kids, man. They're they got bad attitudes. So how do you, right. you do you approach it? Like, uh, you know, I am familiar with the guy who wrote the foreword of your book, Doctor Emden, and he has these techniques where young urban kids can have rap battles about science to empower them to embrace themselves, their background and their education. I think a lot of educators want the same old curriculum and the same old habitual ways of teaching. And I'm going to kind of buck the system and and approach it in a new way. So I'm going to invite John Robinson into this conversation and we can deep dive into the meat and potatoes of it. John Robinson. That's a good question. I feel um, in regards to Dr. Christopher Emden's perspective, you know, first and foremost, I want to say, I definitely consider him a mentor of mine. You know, um, I give thanks for a lot of the guidance and direction that he's given to me since uh, entering into the education space myself. But I would say, yes, I do agree that a lot of the techniques and uh, things that he speaks of and activates in regards to science genius, which is the rap battles about science to empower young people it allows them, yeah, to embrace themselves more, embrace their culture, embrace education more, mainly because of one main ingredient that usually doesn't happen. And 
It allows them to see themselves in the work culturally, perspective wise. They can literally see themselves in the work and it allows them to dive in easier. They could find their way. Well, as you got to remember, I mean, you, you just talked about in the 80s, we were little kids, you know, just learning about hip hop. So the thing was, I've been into hip hop since I was like in third grade. So you got to understand, I grew up with it. I am hip hop. And, and that was my whole mindset. My whole approach, even to raising my own kids, is totally different than than most people because I, I kind of get where they're coming from. I get it because hip hop is a way of, of thinking. It's a culture, right? It's a way of life. So I think like that. I'm just an adult. You know what I mean? So for me, you know, a hip hop battle in a classroom is normal. Like that's not anything crazy. That's how it should be because here's the cool thing that most people forget. This is the first time in history that the the parents and the kids pretty much listen to the same music. Now, they may be listening to The Baby or NBA Youngboy or what have you, Migos or whatever, right? And we may be listening to Nas, Rakim, you know, Jay-Z or whoever, but it's the same speech. It's the same style of talk. It's the same mindset. It's the same thought. So for me, it, it just made sense. Like I never thought about it uh, in a hip hop ed way until I started getting down with the hip hop ed team and started working with those folks. For me, it was just teaching. It's, it was normal. That's how I did it. You know, we have to think about the phenomenon of hip hop, you know, not just the music, but from a cultural sense. I mean, think about it. Hip hop is being used, and I'm saying culturally aesthetically by the largest corporations in the world selling the largest products to people all over the world, why wouldn't it work in school? Why wouldn't it work in an education context? People like me, I've been learning from hip hop since I was a kid. And I feel like hip hop culturally has taught me more about the world and life than any other thing I've come in contact with thus far. Well, I, I think students quickly receive the message that they can only be smart when they are not who they are. And this, in many ways, is classroom colonialism. And it can only be addressed through a very different approach to teaching and learning the way that you've discovered. And I think having someone like Bun B or Ninth Wonder teaching a hip-hop class at a university or someone like yourself, I think it's a step in the right direction. And I can see the way kids sit up straight in their seats when you bring on Talib Kweli or Rhett Maddock when they come on the screen and they're talking directly to them. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it just kind of affirms that, you know, there are adults, you know, quote unquote, with the bunny ears, there are adults that, that kind of get me and understand where we're coming from. You know, it's all about approach. Um, you know, my son, my sons and I, like we, we have conversations and, and I just approach them in, in a, in a different way, in a different manner. Like it, it's not about, and it's, that's what my book is about. It's not about thinking that, you know, their kids, they don't have an opinion. They don't have a voice. They don't know what they're talking about. You can't do that. You know, even though I might've been raised that way, it's not it's not really like that anymore. These kids are more self-aware. Um, you know, they're more technologically advanced. They're they're moving faster. So we have to kind of, you know, move with them. We can't stay antiquated in our ways.
A lot of schools are very good at wasting money and not spending money on what will make a difference, like counselors, social workers who will work with parents, one-on-one tutors, smaller classrooms, updated technology, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because most most school districts, from what I've seen, they worry about the data and, and they forget the human element. And I think that's the major the major problem. I've seen many uh, educators disgruntled, many educators uh, feeling hopeless, feeling defeated, you know, unhappy with their work or their jobs even, you know, but also seeing that perspective of educators who are more seasoned and old school who feel like, yo, innovation is not needed in education. It doesn't belong there. Tradition is where it's at. Let's just keep things the same. And I feel a lot of those people who think that way, um, especially today in education, need to understand that the rest of the world is rapidly moving. Everything's moving at such a quick pace. And the only thing that hasn't really changed in over 200 years is education, you know, and I feel that we're at a time now where tradition doesn't work the same way because students are living in the world, like I said, that's moving so fast, but then they come into these school buildings and they're being forced to slow down and do things in a less efficient way that they can't easily comprehend because that's not their world. But even more so, when you think about uh, the disgruntled, unhappy educator, um, a lot of it is a cycle of you channeling this negative energy to your students, most of them, never focusing on building genuine, real connections and relationships with these young people. So basically, daily, there's adversity between a teacher and student on some level. There's no connection. There's no care. You know, and I feel like without this element, you know, we talk about this in the Youth Culture Power book, without care and building relationships, none of this other magic or connect happens. It's more and more difficult to engage young people without that. And that's where youth culture comes in. That's where these hip hop and youth culture connections really bring a new magic and a new power to this situation. Most of these kids. They're not alike, even though, yeah, they might all listen to the baby or, or you know, NBA young boy. You know, these names are, I keep saying, but that doesn't mean they're the same person. And you got to treat each individual kid like that individual person. And that's how you get through to them. As much as there are teachers who had a lot of pushback um, working with co-teachers who weren't so forward thinking about bringing hip hop culture into the classroom, bringing these engaging activities and using pop culture references to reference academic subjects to get young people who otherwise would be tuned out closer to them, even on a level where they learn them so much that they won't forget it because they learned it through a lens that they're already familiar with. And that's really what I feel is missing, you know, and there are Younger teachers who are ambitious enough, even in their disgruntled, unhappy settings, who could get their hands on perspective, insight, information, and transform their entire teaching experience. But then there's also OG teachers who will probably retire soon. And, you know, we also recognize that we're not necessarily speaking to everyone 
with the intention of changing your mind. We're really speaking our experiences and the things that we've learned during the journey so far in hopes that you can either celebrate with it or learn from it. I would say this directly. I understand where the unhappy comes from. I understand where the pressure comes from. I understand where, you know, sometimes you get frustrated and disgruntled because teaching is a very, very difficult, difficult job. And, you know, there's been times where I've left feeling defeated, but I've been empowered, I guess, with a lot of information and a lot of insight from different scholars who've been researching how to innovate the space, how to create these safe spaces and connections in your classroom, and really how to transform these relationships with your students to make it something that they look forward to versus don't want to be there, you know? And um, I'm not saying it doesn't take work. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but I do have hope that there are educators out there right now that I know of and some that I haven't met who are fighting the good fight. And and you mentioned your, your, your kids are kind of receptive to that as well. Is Joshua is the middle kid, correct? Joshua is the middle kid. Joshua actually was sitting here. He's on his way back. That's funny. Shout out to Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> so one day Joshua says, Dad, what's hip hop? And not only did you explain it to him, but it birthed an album. Now, are your sons embedded in the game? Do they want to do this life? Not even close. I don't think any of my kids want to do hip hop. They kind of, you know, for them, it, it's just a part of, you know, like I remember one of my kids saying, you know, dad, I went over to a friend of mine's house and his dad didn't have a studio in the basement. And, and I thought that was so strange because their whole life I've had a studio in the basement. You know what I'm saying? Like, so they grew up with it. It's not really anything that's like something that they're chasing. You know, my kids are into other things and that that's what they're on and, and that's okay. And I support it and I, and I help them. I'm going to help them get, you know, to where they need to be or want to be. Well, I just, I want, I want Joshua and, and your other kids to realize, you know, I think when I'm 45 or people around 45, you get to a point in your life where you've done a bunch of stuff and you stop learning and you keep doing the same thing you've been doing, or you try mm. and elevate yourself. And I think you're the latter. I'm very inspired by you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let me ask you, I have two daughters. They're young. I'm a youngish father. When my oldest Mm. daughter turns 13 in about four and a half years, would I benefit taking her on a girl's trip, any city of her choice? Can that trip work both ways? Should I do that? I personally, I think, I think that it could, you know, because here's the thing, no matter what, a a kid needs to bond with a parent and, and you definitely you know about uh, daddy daughter issues and that kind of thing. I think that's the best thing that could ever happen. You know, you you take her somewhere and you show her how a man's supposed to treat her, and you show her what she should expect, so that when she becomes a teenager, when she becomes sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and these guys are out here feeding her BS, she'll see it coming a mile away. She don't stand for it. You know what I mean? Well, do I have your permission to steal that idea? Because I'm going to do that. Please. That is not hey, that's something that everybody should do. So yes, please take it and tell people about it. I think it's a great idea. And I think my kids loved it, right? I think Yeah, they loved it. Josh just said he loved it. They they all, you know, chose their own thing. They all did their own thing. And it helped me understand their different personalities. And I think that's why I'm so close with all of my boys because, you know, we we share a bond and I, I know them intimately. I, I know 
what gets to them. I know what I know what gets them upset. And and I don't I, you know, when I were younger, they got whoopings. That's how I worked. OK, I'm capitalist. Punk. I believe in what I call a healthy fear. Right. The, the kids that are young and, and don't grow up to have a healthy fear of things when they become adults, they don't fear jail, law, order. They don't they don't worry about that. So in my theory, I made sure my kids had a healthy fear. So once they got older, like I don't have to do anything like that with my kids. You know, it's we have a relationship. We have conversations now. I don't really at this point, like really tell my kids, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't. I, I throw out scenarios. I have talks with them. I have conversations and they usually end up coming to the conclusion that I wanted them to come up with anyway. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and co-sign the healthy fear way of parenting because I, I operate the same. <laughs> yes, you got to. And when they're when they're young, they need that because that's your formative years. So you might have to smack them on the butt a little bit at a two or three or four years old. You just might have to. You know, they go to touch the stove. You need to tap those hands, you know, and, and I'm not saying that you need to beat them or anything like, you know, draw blood. And that kind of thing. But if you do it at two, three, and four, when they're 13, 14, and 15, you won't have to do it. I want to I wanna uh continue this conversation with the youth because you, John, you're you're gracious enough to be here. Let me ask you another question regarding youth culture and hip hop, because I get that there's demographic shifts and different philosophies, but what about the the taking the cultural divide out of it? Does your argument fall apart then? Because in your book and your experience teaching, if you're providing a strategy that works for specific students in specific neighborhoods, what about it just boils down to a willingness to learn? Great question. And this is something that I feel comes up a lot. And sometimes it's never asked. It's thought about. But one reality, I think, no, you can't take the cultural divide out of it because culture is everything. But the beauty is hip hop takes the cultural divide out of a lot of our lives, you know, hip hop culture is one of the phenomenons that exist in our life today that doesn't, you know, discriminate against any race, color, creed, religion, school of thought, you name it, all under the same umbrella, basically honoring the same culture. In many different forms and shapes. So that's one thing. Um, when you think of young people in urban school education scenarios, um, you have to think of how many years, how many decades have gone by where young people in that scenario, young people of color around the world been forced to learn about everyone else but themselves. So all of the lessons Mostly, they don't see themselves in any of it. None of the heroes of these lessons in history or math or science are they usually shown themselves consistently in the forefront. So if you don't see yourself, it's hard to connect to it. It's hard to make it real to you. So now imagine these stories being told where now you see yourself through this culture, through this lens that you're familiar with. But the aesthetic is deeper than just you and right now in the trend, this hip hop cultural aesthetic dates back thousands of years, you know, if you really want to take it there because it's connected to African culture and ancient culture and the griots, etc. But my point is, 
when you're thinking about this dynamic, I mean, we've been learning like this forever. And I feel like it's not necessarily uh, teaching from a hip hop based education standpoint, in my opinion, is not only geared towards uh, urban school youth anymore. I feel like it's something that can be used around the world just because hip hop culture is so close to youth culture. And if you're really leading with youth culture and just how young people live and the things they're involved with, you'll always be, you know, on the pulse of how things are moving and where things are going and how fast things change and grow. So I feel like, yes, and ultimately the willingness to learn, in my opinion, comes from true, genuine connections from the facilitators and educators themselves, you know. There's a lot of young people in urban school scenarios, and I could speak on this directly because I'm the product of it, who didn't have a great experience in school, mainly because teachers didn't care. They never connected. Now in your career, a couple years ago, you were able to position yourself to get your own uh, label, Polar Entertainment, and you find young talent. And for instance, there was a young man named Hooligan who wasn't even 20 years old at the time, and he arrived on the scene and then he went then he went dark for a couple of years. He just released a new beat tape like 5 months ago, but we're managing talent, we're cultivating talent and you know, you sign someone with the hopes that they're going to ride that wave in some form or fashion, but he's a young guy, he's 19. Why does someone like that go dark for X number of years? You know, he has to um discover and find his own way. What I try to do is find and I've done this with a lot of people and and it's kind of funny cuz people say, "Well, how can you put people out when you really haven't blown up, and you're right, I haven't, but I've had enough notoriety to understand the game, uh, and that's what I do. I impart my knowledge on on people coming up. So with someone like him, I gave him some game, I gave him some knowledge, and I co-signed him because he's dope. And he, you know, he did his thing, and he didn't quite like some of the results. Probably, you know, that what that would be my guess. And then he just kind of took a break. And I didn't even know he had a new beat tape, so I'm going to go find it. But, yeah, he, he's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the same uh, the same with P. Black. I mean, he graduated from Columbus, too, but I can't find much info on him. And I'm not saying this falls on the shoulder of Polar ENT. That would be insane. But when you right. sign a young person, they haven't really, like you said, they haven't really figured out themselves yet. I guess that can be one of the drawbacks of signing somebody so young. Not everybody can be a... Uh, Metro booming. Maybe they're like, "Hey, you know what? I don't, I don't like, I don't love this as much as I thought I was gonna love it." And you know, the thing is, I, I didn't really like what I do with artists that I work with. I don't really sign them. Like their material is their material. I just license it to be able to put it out for a short time. So you know, the thing is, what I'm trying to to do is showcase their talent. Uh, you know, like for instance, P Black lives in L.A. and he's working. As a uh, as an artist out there in Los Angeles, and he's doing a great job. Still rapping, still um, drawing. He did the cover work for the Youth Culture Power book, so you know they're 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 growing. You know they're doing their thing. Tell me about the current landscape of hip hop. Like if I'm a young man like Hooligan, how has the hip hop effect? And I don't just mean the album, like the actual effect. How is it impacting? younger musicians around the world. Are we, are we in a good place hip hop wise? I think we're in an excellent place hip hop wise. You know, a lot of people will tell you something about mumble rap or this or that, but what you got to understand is rap is, is constantly evolving. Hip hop is evolving. So these young people, they view it differently. And I think that's great. That's what's going to make it last. And, and, and when they do that, they take ownership of it. See, the thing is, you know, a good friend of mine, DJ O'Shark kind of put it in perspective. 
It was like, think back to when Run DMC came out. We thought they were the best thing ever. And and a lot of old heads was like, nah, Melly Mel, Curtis Blow, you guys are listening to this new crazy stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, put that into perspective. Somebody comparing Run DMC to new and, and, and different and crazy. So it's kind of like it, it evolves, it grows. And and I, I see hip hop just doing that. And that is that's kind of how that Rawlsmatic project. That that's all about evolution, right? It definitely is. That you know, that's something me and Red have been working on for some time now, and we're really excited about it. And we got a lot of guests, and that album is is almost done. I'm actually, as soon as we're done, I'm gonna be mixing like one of the last songs. We're ready, man. You're gonna love this one. Absolutely, man. And and I want people to know like uh Jay Rawls live at home. Every Sunday night at 9 p.m., you got a new project with Nova. The book is Youth, Culture, and Power. Shout out to John Robinson and the Rawlsmatic Project. And it's like the older you get, the more output. You know, there's no signs of slowing down. It's crazy. If you stop being creative, you die. And that's that's kind of the thing. That's why I keep telling my kids I want them to to do things and be creative and always do something. Like, don't just sit and, and sit back and just play a video game. Get up. Create. It's something about creating, whether you're outside dribbling a basketball, you're creating because you're doing something new. Your body is is moving. It's acting. Your your mind is is activating. You know, it's all about creativity. So if if you ever hear me that say that I'm going to stop making music, then I might be close to death because I don't plan on stopping. I'm going to be 70 and still trying to make music. Well, once this whole quarantine is over, I think J-Raw's live at home. It may or may not be a rap, but that just means that the good doctor is available for booking for workshops, professional developments, presentations, performances, you name it. So all of the above, I think I'm going to hire you as my publicist because me and my son are sitting here bugging out because you have probably been the most researched um, interviewer that I think I've ever had. And I've been doing this over 20 years. I mean, if you're a fan of hip hop, it comes easy, man. And, And you can't fake that kind of fandom. You know, I appreciate your work. And uh, you know, I want to end this on a serious note. I know your dad's battling some serious health issues, and I just want to offer up some well wishes to him as well. I appreciate that, man. I really do. He he's actually doing much better. He he's hanging in there, and he's got um, good spirit. So that really is what helps. You know what I mean? Good spirit. It's a it's a time to celebrate, John. I know you can elaborate on this. Why do you feel like now is the time to release the music, man? We're we're celebrating celebration. Ten year anniversary. The 1960s Jazz Revolution Again, that's the debut collaboration album with Jay Rawls and myself. And yeah, it's been 10 years, so to celebrate that on May 1st, Friday, we're releasing a new remix EP. So there's a handful of remixes from that project. And also there's one new song called Stop Chasing Music. Top flight, we aim high, coasting. No alibis, shaping my destiny, each step of the way, king. Eyes on the prize, y'all far from a plaything. Patience awakens greatness on a higher plateau. Follow what's natural to your desires. Actual life or script. So if you're not hip to youth culture power, it's on all streaming platforms. Push play on that today. Uh, if you're an educator, a parent, an administrator, uh, a coach, you know, a parent, uh, what else? Anyone who works or raises or empowers young people this book is for you this book shares perspective that may help and add on to your current teaching practice and facilitation practice and lens 
but it's also a celebration for those of us who are looking into the future of education. The power of young people run the world. Young people in the driving seat of culture and communication right now, and most of them don't even know it. I appreciate you just carving time out of your uh, your schedule to speak with me. And uh, you're in good company, man, because Rhett Maddox has been on this and uh, and Steve Arrington. And uh, you know, I, I know you don't just put your name on, on any old podcast interview or project, man, so I appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate the the thoughtful research. I appreciate, you know, the good questions. I, I really enjoyed this. I'll be honest with you. And uh, you know, definitely hit me up for anything you need in the future, man. Let's 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 stay in touch. John Robinson, Youth Coach of Power, peace to Jay Rawls. Salute to all you listening out there. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>